Our topic this week from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 17, Abraham and circumcision. Right? I'm sure that's a topic that you've been wondering about all your life, right? So anyway, that's the topic in the Bible as we go through the chapters, and we'll see some very interesting things. This topic of discussion became a very big issue in the first century. Very huge discussion, lasted a long period of time. Uh, councils held and, uh, and uh, meetings and discussions and votes. So anyway, so let's take a look at starting with Genesis 17, and we'll get into the deeper aspects of it for our lives as well. Okay, so starting in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. And so while the topic we're going to be driving through and the theme throughout the sermon today is circumcision, we're going to do a couple little stops along the way. Uh, at some other kind of tangent topics just because it's part of the chapter. And so one of them is right here in this text where it says here, walk before me, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. Now for God to tell Abraham to walk before him and be blameless must mean that God expected that it was possible for Abraham through God's strength as the almighty God would be able to keep him and make him blameless and give him the ability to walk before him blameless. Right? I mean, that'd be a horrible to have a, a God to tell you to do stuff that is impossible to do, right? It'd be horrible to have a boss or anything to tell you to do stuff that is impossible to do. That would be worse than horrible. I mean, that'd be a tyrant. Right? And God is not a tyrant. So for God to say to Abram, walk before me and be blameless, with the command comes the promise and the power to do so. That God is able to give us the ability to walk blameless before him. Without any rebellion, without any uh, known, cherished, ongoing, continuous sin being committed against God. God is able to make us without blame before him. He's able to cleanse us so much, the power of the Messiah is able to wash us so clean, even though our natural nature is just totally naturally born towards rebellion against God, and there's no good in us, and our hearts are filthy, all our righteousness is like filthy rags, and our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. God is able to remove all of that from us, kill it, destroy it, transform us, change us, and born us so anew that we're able, through his strength, through his spirit, to walk before him, blameless. It's one thing to walk before others as doing pretty good, but to walk before God, who's able to see motives, hearts, minds, knowledge, uh, 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 innermost beings, and to walk before him blameless. takes a total transformation on God's part. That's really what we're going to see here. It's part of the theme of circumcision, God, what God wants to do. And so he tells Abraham to walk before him blameless. And so by God's grace, we can also. Verse 3, Abraham fell on his face and talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be a father of many nations. 
No longer your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And so now here, a little, another little tangent. We see here the underlined God saying to Abram, you shall be a father of many nations. And then just a few words later, he says, for I have made you a father of many nations. One is in the future tense, you shall be, and the other is in the present tense, you, I have made you a father of many nations. So which one's correct? Both, yes. One is the reality will be seen, and not for a long time before Abraham becomes a father of many nations, hundreds of years uh, before uh, Israel becomes established really as a nation, so hundreds of years in advance, long after Abraham's death, he shall be the father of many nations. But as far as God's concerned, what God promises for the future is reality in the present. Yes. I have made you the father of many nations. At this point, you don't even have Isaac born yet, but I have made you the father of many nations. And that applies to us as well. The promises that God gives to us, we may not see for another day, weeks, months, years, may not even see in this lifetime on this earth, but they are just as real now as they will be in eternity. Whatever that promise is, and there's lots of promises in the Bible that we can claim individually, and we can claim them as here and now. An example, Yeshua died for us 2,000 years ago, but the Bible says he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So while he wasn't physically slain until 4,000 years into Earth's history, he was just as verily slain from the beginning of the world, from the foundation of the world, as he was on the day he died. And thus his salvation has always been the same and always been offered to all people who would believe and accept him. And even in the accepting the figures of him, the lambs that would be slain in the, in the sanctuary, in the temple, in the Mishkan. And so whatever promise you want to lay a hold of, for example, God saying, I will provide for all your needs according to his riches in glory. Again, we may not see the reality of the provisions for a while, maybe not even in this lifetime, but we can claim them now and they are just as real now as they are today. Beloved, I wish above all things that you prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospereth. Now, we may not experience the full health till the new bodies, till the transformation, till this corruptible puts on incorruption, but we can claim that promise just as verily now as in the future. That God will give to us. He has forgiven us. We may not feel forgiven. You might still feel horrible about what you did. But you are forgiven because God has said so and has already paid the price for it. And so we can claim it. He has made us. You might look in the mirror and not feel so blameless, but we can claim by God's grace his sanctifying power to remove all rebellion out of our hearts and minds so that we can be blameless before him in his sight. So claim his promises. Claim his power. And take hold of that power with the promise, because with every promise comes the ability to fulfill it. And it is reality here and now. So 
move your prayers from God do this, God do this, God do this. Thank you, God, I claim that you have done this. Because you promised in your word that you would fulfill this in my life. So it's claiming it, believing it, and experiencing it. It makes a whole big difference in our whole attitude and transforms our lives in many, many ways in understanding the reality of the fulfilled promise in the here and now. That's faith. That's faith. Believing what is to be is already. Because God said it. It has to be based on what God said, right? You can't claim something that God never promised you. But if God promised it and God said it, you can claim it. It is real and reality now. Verse 6. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Uh, a few things here. We'll get to this everlasting possession in a second. But the covenant that he's promising here, what is the main covenant? What is the real, the main part of the covenant? What is the main covenant here in this, in this slide? What is God promising? What is he covenanting to Abraham? What is the most important part of this slide as far as the covenant? To be his God, right. Yeah, there's the promise of the land, right? I will, all your descendants after you in the land which is a stranger, and the land of Canaan is an everlasting possession. But really the most important promise is in the middle and at the end. I will, uh, to, uh, and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And then the last phrase, last few words, and I will be their God. That's the most important part of the covenant. Right? Everything else comes as a result of that. Right? So we can hold on to the land, the promise, and all these other things, but the most important part is that God is our God. He is the Lord God, the Almighty God, the everlasting God, the all-powerful God, the all-seeing God, the ever-present God, the all-loving God. He is our God, our Creator God, and our Recreator God. That he is our God. That is God's promise. That is God's covenant with Abraham and to his descendants. Now there's also this phrase here, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. Now we're going to get into that more with this, this, uh, this topic of circumcision. It says everlasting possession. How long is everlasting? Okay. I mean, on the surface, it seems like the way we use the, the, the term here in our, our uh, culture today, well, it means forever, right? Yeah. Yeah. But does it mean that? Let's look at even right here. He says Canaan will be an everlasting possession. Was Canaan a possession of Noah? Was Canaan a possession of, of uh, Methuselah? Was Canaan a possession of, of uh, Abraham's parents and grandparents? No. So it's, is, it a, is it a possession of Abraham's at this point? 
He's just visiting there, right? He's passing through. He doesn't own anything even at this point. Not even a burial cave yet. So it's not his possession yet. And then after uh, his grandsons and the children leave, they don't come back to the land until Joshua. <laughs> they never even have any, even really a foothold in it for another 500 years. So is that everlasting? If it's not even yet for another 500 years and hasn't been in the first 2,000 years of Earth's history? Hardly a possession everlasting as we think of everlasting, right? And then even after we are in the land with Joshua and then remain in the land for about 800 years through Joshua and the kings and, and uh, well, the judges and then the kings, and then Babylon comes along and Nebuchadnezzar takes us and disperses us and he's controlling over the land, and yet some people are still living there. He's controlling the land. We're not really in possession of it for 70 years. And then by God's grace, we're able to come back under Cyrus, and we're allowed back, and, and then stay there, and are possessing the land for 500 years, even though ruled by uh, the Syrians and, and others uh, for, for a good portion of that time. And then after that, Rome comes, and destroys the temple and disperses us again for like 1,900 years. And we're not really in possession of the land, although there were always some Jews living in the land throughout that 1,900 years. But really, could hardly say we were in possession of the land. And so this term everlasting, again, we have to understand it biblically and not as we think of it in our terminology today. That there, are, there can be, there's conditions to it, and there can be uh, bumps in the road. And then really for eternity. Will we be in possession of the land of Canaan for eternity when there's a new heavens and a new earth? You know, and everything is totally changed, everything is totally made new, and everything is burned up and destroyed, and, and, and the whole landscape is different, and the oceans are gone, the more Mediterranean Sea, right? And everything's different. The amount of olives is different. Everything is different. And then just the square footage of the New Jerusalem is so much bigger than Canaan. <laughs> I hardly say that it's an everlasting possession, this little piece of sliver of land that's half the size of Florida, size of New Jersey. Who wants New Jersey, right? So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, Jersey, right? <laughs> so, It would be like a, a, if, if, let's say, your, your great-grandfather had uh, even an acre of land or even smaller, and he had some old wood shack on it, and, uh, and it burned to the ground. I mean, just totally burned. There's not a piece of wood left on it, and the splinter left. It's all just burned and gone, right? And he dies, and no one does anything with it, and, and it just gets overgrown and just a total mess, and, and goes generation, generation. Finally, you, you inherit it. And, uh, and, and you buy all the land around it, so now you add, let's say, 5,000 acres onto it. So now you got 5,001 acres. Wow. <laughs> right? And then you build a big, brand-new brick home on it. Did you say you're in possession of your grandfather's old shack? <laughs> you know, not really. It's totally different. Everything's different, right? The well is different. The septic tank. Everything is different now. Uh, and so that's what the new heavens and new earth is going to be totally different than really the land of Canaan. So the everlasting possession, the land, it's really more than that. It's God being our God. 
And that is everlasting. But this term everlasting, again, so we see it here used in this context, uh, and we'll see it used for circumcision, does not mean without end or consistent, without any bumps in the road, without any breaks in the road. Now, we often think of everlasting, but that's, again, not a biblical concept, as we're already seeing here with this promise of everlasting possession of the land. Because obviously we didn't, Abraham didn't, even in his lifetime, and not for another 500 years. Okay, so we'll come back to that. Verse 9, God said to Abraham, as for you, as for you, you shall keep my covenant and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So again, what is the covenant? What is the promise? No, that's part of it, but not the main part. What is the main part of the covenant? God being our God. God being our God. Correct. Correct. And as us being, us acknowledging him as God is our part. But what is the sign of the covenant? And the sign is different than the covenant itself. Right? You can put a sign out on the road, and that's different than the building itself, right? It's different than the business. You can have a sign on your car, it's different than the business, right? So it's just a sign of the covenant, an outward demonstration of the inward reality that God is our God. And so circumcision was to be a sign of the covenant. And God's sign was that he would give us the land. But that he would be our God is the covenant. And that we would be his is our side of the covenant. We would surrender to him on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. Verse 12. And he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any strange, from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So here we have this circumcision as an everlasting covenant covenant. But again, as we just learned with that everlasting, doesn't necessarily always mean consistently and for all time. So we'll again see more on that as we look at some more scriptures. And the whole purpose of circumcision, as we think about it, you know, why did God give that as the sign of the covenant for Abraham? The Bible doesn't specifically say, but I think, and I'll de designate what I think different than what the Bible says, right? That's important, right? So we talk about what the Bible says. Now this is just what I think because the Bible doesn't specifically say. But I think it was to give, be given to Abraham and his descendants as a reminder of Abraham's attempt to fulfill God's promise in his own way by having a child with Hagar and having Ishmael to be a reminder to keep the line pure so that the Messiah would come not through Abraham and Hagar or um, Jacob and whoever, um, or Isaac and whoever, but that it would come through the line that God had ordained from Abraham and Sarah and be a consistent line 
throughout. To not intermarry, to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, as we saw was a problem back in prior to Noah's day, by the intermarrying that took place. And that God didn't want that, and he doesn't want it today either. But specifically then for the line of the Messiah to be pure. So kind of a rebuke of his lack of faith and his attempt to fulfill God's promise in his own power, in his own way, and a continual reminder for him and his descendants to remain pure and keep a pure line, faith for the Messiah to come through. Verse 14, the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in your flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That's pretty heavy. And be cut off from the people? Be removed from the people? Verse 15, then God said to Abram, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. This also is interesting. We can see how Abraham, father of many nations, well, he's already got Ishmael, and so he got the nation there. Then he's going to get Isaac, and so he got the nation there. So he's going to be the father of nations. Okay, and Ishmael has 12 uh, sons, 12 tribes, and, you know, and then Isaac. And so, yeah, okay, so father of many nations. But Sarah, Sarah only has one kid. How she become a mother of nations? Because through that one kid, through that one seed, comes the Messiah. And through that line, that pure-kept line, the Messiah would come. And through the Messiah, all nations are invited into the children of God, the people of God, the sons of Abraham and Sarah by faith. And so she becomes then the mother of nations, not just the mother of the one nation. Verse 17, Abram fell on his face and laughed. And said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. little doubt there. <laughs> and one whole passage, Ishmael's son, his own works, his own deeds, his own works of his hands. And he laughs. Now we'll see in another chapter, another week, a different week, uh, Sarah laughs and God calls her out. God doesn't call Abraham out for here for laughing, for whatever reason, I don't know why. But Abraham also laughed. Verse 19, God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laugh, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Okay, so now here again, we got this everlasting covenant with Isaac and his descendants after him. Did all of Isaac's descendants make God their God? Is it everlasting? No. Well, we got Judas, we got Caiaphas, we got uh, Achan. Achan, was when, they, when we went into Jericho and stole items from Jericho and God had them wiped out. And there are others, Moses' cousins, 
So not everyone who came from the line of Isaac, everlasting, all the descendants, became part of the covenant promise. Right? They were able to choose to opt out if they wanted to. Right? So again, we have to get a, a grasp of this word everlasting and, and not put our definition onto it. We need a biblical definition of it. Verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. And we've talked a little bit about him in the past, and in another sermon we'll get more into Ishmael. Verse 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. And he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So it sounds like God was standing there right with Abraham, right? God went up from him, so God was there speaking with him. And we see that God has done that a few times with Abraham, and we'll do it again uh, in future chapters that we'll look at. And verse 23, Abraham took Ishmael, and every man who was born in his house or was bought with money and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said to him. And Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old. So 13 years old, Ishmael. And uh, that was a horrible, horrible time. I know someone who was circumcised as a teenager. That was a horrible experience. That was not a, not a good time to get I got him an operation. And yet today, the Muslims circumcise their sons when they're 13. Yep. Yep. Now, the Quran, the Quran is quite a bit different than the Bible. It has some of the same stories, in a sense, but they're changed quite a bit. Uh, this part of this story is kept the same. That Ishmael was circumcised when he was 13, and so they circumcise their sons when they're 13 years old. And uh, not a great experience. I can't imagine at 99. And uh, Abraham had, uh, we read other places, he had over 300 fighting men uh, from his household. And so that was a busy day for the mole <laughs> and for the people. And we have the story uh, in, uh, uh, with Jacob's sons, two of his sons, uh, well, one of his daughters gets, gets uh, raped and uh, they're not happy about it. And so they go to this prince and say, well, now you've got to marry our, our sister, and in order to do that, you have to be circumcised, and all your men have to be circumcised. And the prince agrees to it, and he gets all his people to agree to it, and they're just not fightable uh, position anymore. They're out, they're, they're, they're in pain, and they're not. Uh, and so two men come and kill them all <laughs> because they're laid out circumcised. So yeah, you can't imagine uh, Abraham's and all his... People, but they went along with it, willing. So, as the account in Genesis 17, and that is where most of the texts regarding circumcision are mentioned, we'll look at a few others, until we get to the first century. And the first century believers, this became a big, huge topic. Came a big issue there where they were discussing it for months, years at a time. Had councils and coming together to decide whether or not to continue with circumcision. So why? How could they even have that discussion? Where, as we've read this chapter, 
And so let's look at what some of the writings are. Let's see what Paul had to say. And Paul was circumcised on the eighth day. Yeshua was circumcised on the eighth day. But then Paul comes along and says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. That seems like a very strange statement in light of what we just read, very, some very strong wording in Genesis 17. Cut off from the people if you're not circumcised. And then here he says, circumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments is what is important. But wasn't circumcision one of the commandments? How could you say it, well, keeping the commandments is important and circumcision is not? I mean, that's almost like saying, oh, it doesn't matter if you go 30 miles over the speed limit. All that really matters is if you observe the traffic laws. Right? Well, it is a traffic law not to go 30 miles over the speed limit, right? So, so how can you say, observe the traffic laws, but it doesn't matter to go 30 miles over the speed limit? It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Unless there's different commandments, different levels of commandments that Paul understood and that all 613 are not necessarily equal. And so some commandments would be more like maybe Jaywalking is not that big a deal, but don't murder anyone. The difference? Maybe that's what he was thinking here. Maybe that's what he's getting at. So how did he come to this conclusion? We either have to write him off as a false prophet or crazy, but it's not only him. Because he brought this topic to the Jerusalem council and the apostles agreed with him. Under a lot of distress and duress and debate, and back and forth, and, and sometimes questioning whether they made the right decision. But they stuck with it. So how can they come to that conclusion? That's what we're going to be looking at. And in the broader spectrum, which of the 613 commandments then still apply to us today? What is nothing but what is keeping the commandments of God? If Paul completely says, circumcision is nothing but keep the commandments of God, then what else might be on the table? And what is classified as keeping the commandments of God that is crucial and applies to us today? So that's what we're going to be looking at. So let's look at some more texts. Let's go to another statement by Paul or writing by Paul. In Romans 2, verse 5, Circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit. So some of that, I think, makes some pretty easy, plain sense. Some of it, a little difficult to understand. But on the easy part, right, it's only profitable if you keep the whole law. And if you're not keeping the law, then your circumcision doesn't do you anything. Right? Again, like Achan, he was circumcised. He was of the tribe of Judah. But there he was stealing from the items that God said, don't take, from Jericho. And so his uncircumcision didn't do any good, or his circumcision didn't do him any good, did it? Right? When, when he was commanded to be executed in his whole family. So 
has to be more than just an outward thing if it's not inward in the heart to love God and to follow God. It needs to be both. And so that makes sense. It doesn't do us any good if it's just an outward thing. And then where does Paul get this idea that circumcision is of the heart? Where does he bring that in? And it's not so much the outward, but that it's the inward, the heart that needs to be circumcised, the carnal nature that needs to be cleansed and changed, the, the rebellion against God, the selfishness, the pride, that that has to be cut away and not just a piece of flesh on the outside. Where does he come to that conclusion that it's circumcision of the heart? Well, he gets it from the Torah. He gets it from Moses. Moses in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16 said, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. And then Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And then we see both sides of the covenant, that God will be our God and that we will love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and strength because God circumcises our hearts. And so in the first one, it says, uh, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And then it says in the second one, that God will circumcise our heart. Which one is it? Both again, right? We need to choose and allow him to, but it's God who has to do it. It's God that does do it. We can't do it ourselves. That would be like what Abraham tried to do in having a child with Ishmael. We can't change ourselves, but God can change us. But we have to give him permission. And then Jeremiah agreed with Moses. He says, thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskin of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Again, God's calling us to walk blameless before him, to circumcise the heart, to surrender to the Lord, to allow him to forgive us, cleanse us, transform us, change us, remove the hearts of stone, put in the heart of flesh. Put his laws into our hearts and minds. And also in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 25, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, for all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So that's kind of like what Paul said, you're circumcised or uncircumcised, if you're in rebellion against God, it won't do you any good. If you're not keeping the law, it won't do you any good. And that's what it's saying here. They weren't, and that Babylon's going to come and destroy them all. And did. Now this is a very interesting passage. The Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel for all the people who came out of Egypt had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness had not been circumcised. That's from the book of Joshua, chapter 5, verse 2. That's telling us that for the 40 years in the wilderness, no one was circumcised. And that is very interesting. As we look at this everlasting covenant, everlasting 
to be circumcised. And yet, here we are in the wilderness under Moses' eye, under his direction, under God's direction. Fire by night, cloud by day, Shekinah glory there. God providing food six days a week, double on Friday, water out of the rock. God with us and moving with us continually. And yet God allows us to go 40 years uncircumcised. God threatened to kill Moses because he didn't circumcise his sons. And then here, Moses and God allowing 40 years to not be circumcised. Why? If it's this everlasting thing, maybe it's not so everlasting as we think of everlasting. And so maybe Paul, looking at these things, Paul seeing this word everlasting and doesn't always apply as continual, Paul seeing that, well, people before Abraham weren't circumcised, even people during the wilderness time weren't circumcised, that is not as a mandate as everlasting, as continual, as might seem on the surface. That might have been some of the reasoning going into Paul's understanding, and again, the apostles end up agreeing with him. So how do they come to that conclusion? How can we know which one of the 613 still apply? If Paul and the apostles agreed that circumcision was not one of the ones that still applied to us today, that it wasn't continual, kind of everlasting, biblical grounds for that, demonstrated in that, then how can we know? So that's what we're going to attempt to answer now. Which of the 613 laws are still binding? Which are eternal? That says external should be inter eternal. Which are eternal and universal? I believe there's a formula. It's not written in the Bible specifically. Uh, I wrote this with... Uh, so it's just my right. Again, I want to differentiate between when we're looking at Bible texts. But I do think it's based on the biblical principles. And I think you can apply these principles, this formula, to each one of the 613 laws and see which ones apply to us today. And I think we can all agree there are some that don't. And we can see that, for example, there are some of the laws. Well, let's, let's, let's look at this first. Okay, any law that was not given to the parents of mankind before sin entered the world, but was given later on, obviously could not be eternal, since it was not in existence at all times. And two, and if it was not given until sometime after Adam and Eve, it certainly cannot be said that it is universal, that it has applied to all people. Does that make sense? Maybe a little shortened version, more positive version. This is on the not. Can't. is the same thing in the positive. If the law was given before sin and continues until after sin is gone, then it is eternal. And two, if the law was given in the Garden of Eden, it was given to the parents of mankind, thus it is universal. Does that make sense? All right, so... From the beginning, it's there in the beginning, and it'll be there in heaven, thus eternal, continual. And it, obviously if it came after that, it can't be eternal, if it's not from the beginning. 
and universal if it's given to Adam and Eve and for their children, thus it applies to all humanity, universal. Okay, so let's look at some examples from the 613 commandments. Circumcision. Did God have circumcision in the Garden of Eden? No, it doesn't mention that. It mentioned until Abraham. And again, I think it was in the rebuke of the, of the sin that he committed and a reminder not to do it again and for his descendants. So no, the first time circumcision is mentioned is in relation to Abraham 2,000 years after Adam and Eve. And will there be circumcision in heaven? So even if, even if there was circumcision, even if Noah was circumcised and just not mentioned, will there be circumcision in heaven? Think on the eighth day of our lives, the men's lives? No. So it's not eternal and universal, even in the beginning aspect of it. How about the laws pertaining to sacrifices? Did God have sacrifices in the Garden of Eden? No, there was no sacrifices in the Garden of Eden. The first sacrifice is not until after Adam and Eve are taken out of the Garden of Eden. Right? So the sacrifices. So close to the beginning of time, but not from the beginning of time. Will we have sacrifices in heaven? They will be killing animals in heaven for sacrifices? No. Should we be killing animals for sacrifices now? No, we have the Messiah who has become the sacrifice for us. Right? So while it's a law given, and most of the laws in the Torah, the 613 laws, have to do with the sacrifices in the temple, the vast majority of them. And so they're not eternal, and nor universal. And so an example of the sanctuary, there were certain laws, such as uh, which family of the Levites was to carry which piece of furniture. So a certain family was to carry the Ark of the Covenant, another family was to carry the curtains, another family was to carry this piece of furniture, whatever. Each you know, had their assignment through the wilderness. Now when Solomon builds the temple and those pieces of furniture are permanent, does that law still apply? And that family has to go around and carry it around the wilderness. No. It was for a time. It was given to a certain people for a certain time. And yet there's a number of verses and commandments out of the 613 that apply in that way. That were given to a specific time, to a specific people, for a specific purpose. But were not universal and not eternal. So should you be carrying pieces of the furniture around? Should you be walking around the wilderness with a piece of furniture on your back? No. Right, so it doesn't apply to us today. And so I think we can see the logic in that. Not all the 613. Sometimes you go ask some people, how much of the 613 commandments should we be keeping today? They go, all of them. Right? Kind of a knee-jerk reaction. All of them. Oh, yeah? You're going to go carry a piece of furniture around the wilderness? <laughs> you know. Uh, so obviously, they were not all meant to be eternal and universal. But obviously, some are. We need to discern which ones are and which ones are not. So the sacrifices, the whole sanctuary service, not. Uh, circumcision, not. And I believe this is how... Maybe Paul came to this conclusion, maybe not using this exact same formula, but this kind of principle, and came to that conclusion. How about the seven feasts? Did God have the seven feasts in the Garden of Eden? No. The first feast day celebrated was the Passover, and it was not instituted until 2,500 years after Adam and Eve. Did Abraham ever keep a Passover? No. Did Isaac keep a Passover? Did Jacob keep a Passover? No. Did Adam, Methuselah? No. Noah? No. 
Passover did not come, had really no significance until we come out of Egypt. And as it points forward to the Messiah. Now, does that mean that there's not good in it, that we can't learn from the sacrifices, that they don't point forward, that we shouldn't study them and understand the sacrifices in light of the Messiah? No, oh, those are good things to study. And to observe the Passover, we observe the Passover here every year. Uh, it's a wonderful occasion. It reminds us of the, of the Exodus. It reminds us of Yeshua's sacrifice as the Passover lamb. So it's important to do. But is it a mandated have to on the day? Again, it's not eternal. It's not universal. Um, circumcision has many good health benefits to it. It's been proven. Uh, studies have shown uh, cervical cancer or other things are lower among families that practice circumcision. So it's a good thing. It's a good practice. But as far as a mandated, do the Gentiles have to, that were coming in the first century, did they have to be circumcised? Paul and the apostles looked at it, studied this out, and came to the conclusion, no. So it could be good. It could be, shouldn't be ignored. It shouldn't be thrown away. It shouldn't be uh, bad mouth. Same with the seven feasts. They're very good. They're very important for us to study, learn, understand. But are they a level of the keeping of the commandments, or are they like on the level of the circumcision? Using this principle, they're more on the level of the circumcision than on the level of the commandments. Again, they're not eternal, and they're not universal. And again, once you take out the sacrifices out of the verses of the feast, there's not much left. We're talking about Swiss cheese with huge holes in it. <laughs> not much left once you take out all the verses that refer to sacrifices in relation to the holy days. The majority of what's written about the holy days has to do with the sanctuary, and in particular, the sacrifices. The way we observe the holy days today really has, is not mentioned in the Bible. Right? Like Yom Kippur in the Bible, it says you take a bull and take a ram and take uh, two goats. We don't do any of that today. Right? And what we do today in the ceremony of Yom Kippur has spiritual meaning and, and its depth and, and the principles are there. But the actual keeping it the way it's written in the Bible, you know, we didn't, don't do and shouldn't do. And Tells us three times a year to go to Jerusalem. I'm all in favor of that. That's good. Where are we all going to live? Where are we going to sleep? There's not enough hotels, right? For all the world and all believers to go. Right? So the, the principle is good, fine, all like that. Keep, but to keep it, then you've got to go to Jerusalem. You've got to sacrifice offerings, uh, lambs in the temple, which doesn't exist. Right? So no one's keeping the Passover today, biblically, the way the Bible says to do it. No one's keeping Yom Kippur the way the Bible says to do it. Again, not bad for us to do, celebrate, observe, enjoy. Uh, remember, and in that way, and that's all good. So what about the Ten Commandments? Did God have the Ten Commandments in the Garden of Eden? Yes. Although God did not write them down on stone for another 2,500 years or so, they were there in the Garden. There was no killing, stealing, etc. allowed in the Garden, right? And even, and, and really, the sin that Satan, the serpent, did, and Adam and Eve did broke most of the commandments. In a sense, Satan was killing Adam and Eve. Uh, Eve was committing suicide. Adam was committing suicide. Eve was killing Adam by giving him the fruit. Uh, they stole from the tree that what they weren't supposed to take from. They coveted the be like God. They put other gods before them. They didn't honor God as the father. They listened to Satan. And so a bunch of the commandments they broke. The Sabbath was there. The Sabbath specifically mentioned being there. So the Sabbath we see is eternal. And Sabbath is mentioned as we'll be celebrating the Sabbath in heaven. So there's definitely the eternal aspect of the Sabbath specifically mentioned in both ends. And through the middle, 
in the center of the Ten Commandments, written by God on, with his finger on stone and placed inside the Ark of the Covenant, makes it separate than the other writings that are written on parchment by Moses, placed outside the Ark of the Covenant. And when we think about this circumcision, which causes, causes big discussion, big meetings, and long drawn out committee meetings and all like that, over circumcision, which is done to half the population once in their life when they're eight days old, not even their choice. And a huge, huge, big discussion, big debate. Could you imagine if Paul was saying, Sabbath doesn't matter anymore. Let's change it to Sunday. I mean, that's something that takes place every 100% of the population, their entire lives, 52 weeks out of the year. And that's like thousands of times people keep the Sabbath in a lifetime. And if the application is, oh, the Sabbath is not important, there'd be more than just big uh, conventions on it and, and, and sessions on discussions on it. There's nothing mentioned in the Bible them debating it at all. But there's a lot in the Bible of them debating about the circumcision. Which again, relatively, once in a lifetime, for only half the population. And so obviously there's a difference. And obviously they didn't change the Sabbath or even think about doing away with the Sabbath. Otherwise, again, we'd have books and books and books, chapters in the Bible of, of, of the discussions and the debates that would have taken place over that. Um, so obviously a difference. God made a difference, putting in stone, putting in the ark with his own finger. Difference between the Ten Commandments and the rest of the commandments. And again, eternal from beginning through to eternity and given to Adam and Eve, thus applying universally to all mankind. Make sense? Helpful? And then what about the health laws? Did God have health laws in the Garden of Eden? Yes, God told Adam and Eve what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. Not only about the tree, but were they eating pigs in the garden? Were they eating shrimp in the garden? No. no. Fruits, grains, nuts, vegetables, that's what God ordained, herbs for them to eat in the garden and in heaven. We're going to be eating pigs in heaven? In the wilderness? They didn't have us eat pigs, right? So, uh, so that's a principle there. Well, God modified it and allowed various things over time. Meat eating, clean meeting, properly, no blood, no fat, type of thing. God has allowed. But the principle is still there. God and they did no pigs, no shrimp, no shellfish, never changed on that. So that's an internal principle and a universal principle. Maybe even tithes can even fall into that too. Well, it's not mentioned till Abraham. Uh, God didn't specifically tell Abraham to give tithes, so obviously Abraham knew it somewhere from before. And the principle that God owns everything is a principle that is eternal and that we'll give to him. And kind of the, the tree was kind of a tithe at, test, kind of like Jericho was a tithe test. So various different uh, principles we can see applying this. These principles here I think apply to all 613 commandments and we'll be able to see which ones still apply to us today, which ones are eternal, which ones are universal. So here again uh, principle I made up. If the law was given before sin and continues until after sin is gone then it is eternal. If the law was in the Garden of Eden, it was given to the parents of mankind, thus it is universal. Okay. And then all who want to become Abraham's seed. Uh, we mentioned Achan, Achan being cut off from the tribe of Judah. They're at the time of Joshua at Jericho, and he chose not to be circumcised in heart. He greedily took for his own and was cut off. And at that same time, we have Rahab. Now Rahab wasn't 
circumcised physically. He was a Gentile and a woman, but she was circumcised in heart. And she chose to believe in the Lord God and became part of the nation of Israel. And so Paul was saying, not a Jew who's one outwardly, but one who's inwardly in heart. And there's an example of it going all the way back to Joshua's time. And Joshua, Joshua was an Israelite, no doubt circumcised, and was leading over the nation, and he was also circumcised in heart as well. And so we have three great examples there. Joshua, who's both, Achan, who is only circumcised outwardly flesh, not of the heart, Rahab, who's circumcised in heart, but not of the flesh, and who uh, comes to the Lord and part of God's children and the inheritor of the eternal covenant that God will be her God and that she will be his child. And that's God's promise for all of us. That's what God wants for all of us. That's God's gift to each one of us. And so I hope that was helpful. Maybe this has been a topic that you've wondered in the past. How could Paul get away with saying circumcision and, you know, and that whole debate? And now maybe it makes some sense and helpful and, uh, and apply to the other things and know for our lives regarding various different aspects of the 613 commandments. So in a moment when we pray, we can thank God uh, that he has revealed some things to us and helped us answer some questions. And so we can pray that God uh, solidifies that in our mind, in our heart, and not just in our heads, but in our lives. That it becomes lived out in us. And we see the balance and love of God and the mercy of God in all things. And the harmony of God's scriptures in all things. Secondly, if God is revealing to you maybe some area of your life, some promise in your life, that you've been praying about and praying about and hoping that someday in the future God will do, and you want to claim it now. God has made you. God has made you a child of his. God has made you a son and daughter of his. God has made you an inheritor of his goodness and his grace. That you are his child and you are co-heirs with the Messiah. And all the promises are for you, and you want to claim some promise now for yourself. And the moment we pray, lay hold of that promise and claim it and thank God for the fulfillment of it. Even if you don't see it for another 500 years, thank him now for fulfilling his promise in your life. Third, is it God's revealing some area in your life, maybe that uh, you're uncircumcised in heart, maybe some area where there's some rebellion, some area, some cherished of sin, you're not walking blamelessly before God. You know it and God knows it. God's been convicting you. Some area of covetousness, selfishness, anger, bitterness, rage, hatred, fears, insecurities, worries, doubt. Maybe some area you've been trying to fulfill God's promises in your own power and your own strength. You want to surrender it to God. Be cleansed by him. Forgiven by him and transformed by him, changed by him. Then in a moment we pray, let him do his work through the blood of Messiah to wash you clean and to fill you with his Holy Spirit and give you the power to walk today blameless before him without any known, cherished, open, continuous, rebellious sin against him. And third, if there's some area where maybe you've been keeping commandments or trying to keep commandments that are no longer commandments. They no longer apply to you. You've been legalistically trying to make and mold and, 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 and force it, just as Abraham tried to force the promise, and you're trying to fulfill something that God hasn't asked you to fulfill anymore. 
And you want to surrender that and rest in God's love and rejoice in his love and walk in the areas and the commandments that God has given to us for today. Then a moment we pray, let God ask God to balance you out and give you strength and rightness. Or on the flip side, if there's some areas of some commandments that you're not keeping, God wants you to walk in. If you've been boasting in your circumcision or uncircumcision, but keep the commandments of God. That's what's important. And so, you need the Holy Spirit to empower you, to keep his ways, to keep his word. And the moment when we pray, ask him to empower you to do so. And also, if you want to lay a hold of the promise to be a child of Abraham, child of Sarah, one of the nations that have come through their line, child of God, son and daughter of God, Claim a hold of the covenant, the everlasting covenant, that God is your God and that you are his child. If you want to lay a hold of that promise, in a moment we pray, thank him for being your God. Claim it eternally, universally in your life and share it with others. Because God wants to be loved and known by all. If any of those areas apply to you, let's pray. Let God work individually and personally in your life and together in our lives as corporately as a congregation. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the balance of your word. Thank you for spiritual discernment and understanding. Live out your principles in our lives. Thank you for being the everlasting God. Cut out of our hearts, out of our minds, everything that's unclean, Destroy it, take out our stony, selfish hearts. Crucify us in you. Destroy it, kill us, bury us away, and bring forth new life. Live in us and out of us. Put your hearts into us, your laws in our minds, and live them out in us and through us. For your honor and for your glory, in Yeshua's holy name. Amen.